Cotton Mather, the great New England preacher of some 300 years ago, said, and I quote, the great design of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne of the dominion of God in the souls of men. And indeed, that is my desire this morning as your pastor, for our God does reign, and his desire is not to force upon us through certain acts of raw authority his power and get us to do what he demands, but rather to summon us to worship him by, frankly, ravishing our affections with his glory and his grace and his excellency and his majesty, and in so doing, draw us to himself. And so this morning I would come to you as a minister of the gospel and echo the words of the Apostle Paul that says that he came to preach the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This morning we will continue our study and next week we will finish our study about the men that Jesus shaped. A study of the apostles that we find in Matthew chapter 10 and other texts. And so if you'll turn there, we will begin there in a few minutes. It has been a deep encouragement to me and I understand to various ones of you to look at the lives of these dear men because their lives really mirror our lives. We all share similar weaknesses and besetting sins. They were plain, ordinary men like us, and yet God gradually conformed them and transformed them by his power into great warriors of the faith. But you know, it's a very fascinating fact to me as I look at Scripture that we do not see the Word of God highlighting their accomplishments, but rather focusing much more on their weaknesses. I find that to be strangely curious. The emphasis is always on the excellencies of Christ, his sovereignty, his power, his humility, his compassion, mercy, grace, and so on. But their lives and their accomplishments were, for the most part, never documented. They were always on the background, or in the background, I should say. They were supporting actors, supporting characters on the grand and glorious stage of divine redemption. They were never front and center stage. And so we read much about their weaknesses, much about their stubbornness, their pride, their shallow faith, even at times their stupidity, which certainly gives me great hope and you as well. But, you know, folks, bottom line, they lived and they died in obscurity. Yet they were the divinely chosen emissaries of the kingdom of God. They were the apostles of Christ, the men that God used to lay the foundation stones of the church, of which Jesus is the cornerstone. You know, in light of their prestigious position as apostles and their incredible success in establishing the church, which now continues to flourish some 2000 years later, you would think that the Holy Spirit would have recorded at least a few sentences about their noble accomplishments. Since they learned all about ministry from the master himself, 
you would think that somewhere we would read about massive numbers of conversions that followed them after Pentecost. You would think that we would read about their huge churches, about magnificent buildings that they built and immense crowds at worship festivals and evangelistic crusades. You would think you would read something about their extensive ministry headquarters. That somewhere we would read something about their best selling books and their mighty impact on politics. But dear friends, nothing like that exists. And you ask, well, I wonder why. Well, Jesus made it clear in Matthew 7 that people must enter through the narrow gate. And he says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. Indeed, those things never happened with the apostles. That's not God's way. His faithful servants followed his example and they died. They lived and they died in obscurity. They were never made to be religious celebrities. And I find that interesting and certainly appropriate given the realities of Scripture and the truth of the narrow gate. You see, their rewards were reserved in heaven. And they were laid up in heaven, not on earth. And as we look at Scripture, we realize that throughout eternity, their sacrifice will be commemorated in the New Jerusalem. They were told that their names will be displayed in the very foundation stones of the capital city of heaven. You see, for the apostles, there were no earthly award ceremonies. No listing in scripture of all their heroic accomplishments. They didn't have any, even have any dove awards for the musicians. Can you imagine that? No, God alone deserves the glory. They were servants of the king of glory, not of themselves. And as Peter said in First Peter 5, we are to humble ourselves as we serve others. And he said, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And friends, make no doubt about it. The apostles are exalted at this time, all save Judas Iscariot. They are now exalted as they stand in the presence of his glory, adorned in the robes of righteousness. Imputed to them through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to elaborate upon just the need for this kind of humility in Christian service, which is really the heart of all ministry, which manifests itself primarily in a willingness to serve the Lord faithfully in three ways. And that is to serve him in obscurity, in love and in faith. And we see these virtues illustrated in the three lives of the men that we will look at today. Three men who gave up everything, their families, their homes, their careers, their security, all to follow Jesus, to serve in obscurity, to serve in love and to serve in faith. And ultimately to die an ignominious and torturous death. 
an understandable outcome given their invasion into the kingdom of darkness established upon this wicked world that is ruled by Satan. In Matthew chapter 10, we've read this many times. We're going to read it once again to get the flow. The Lord comes in verse one and we read and having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother and James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot. And we'll stop there because this morning we will look at James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot. First of all, James, the son of Alphaeus. There is nothing in scripture that we read about this man, save his name. We read of him only in the list of the apostles. And he is listed with Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James, also called Thaddeus. We know nothing of his father, Alphaeus. However, he could be the same Alphaeus as Matthew's father. We read about that in Mark 2, 14, making him the brother of Matthew. But we don't know that for sure. We do know that his mother's name was Mary, that she was a devoted follower of Christ, an eyewitness of the crucifixion. His mother was even one that assisted in preparing the body of Jesus for burial. We also know, according to Mark 1540, that he is called James the less. Less in Greek is micros. We get our word microscopic from that, and it merely means little. And so his nickname was Little James. Little in this context could mean that he was small in stature. Maybe he was a little man, or it could denote something about his youth, that he was young in age, perhaps distinguishing him from James, the son of Zebedee, that was also one of the twelve. Or it could be a reference to his position in the group, that he was a man of little influence in comparison to the others, that he was small with respect to his prominence in contrast to some of the others. Certainly he was not in the prominent inner circle as Peter, James and John. And certainly this is no indictment upon him or upon the Lord. You can only intimately disciple so many people. Positionally, they were all equal as we all are in the body of Christ. But functionally, there was a hierarchy and we see that even in the body of Christ. You will recall Peter was the leader. Peter, James and John were a part of the inner circle And the others seem to be of lesser rank, at least in function. So here is James, the son of Alphaeus, little James, a man maybe of lesser size and influence. But yet certainly there was no hint of any demandingness on his part to somehow be perceived as superior or somehow demand respect. And as I reflected upon this, I I thought, you know, first of all, it's hard to. Preach much of a sermon when you really have no text, but certainly we can imply by what is not written some things about this man. And as I thought about him, I thought of the many unsung heroes of the faith that served faithfully to the very end and many of them in utter obscurity. Little James was a footnote on the human 
on the on the page of human history. Yet, when we think about him as an apostle, we see that he was a valiant warrior whose legacy will be remembered in heaven through eternity. You know, this is hard for many people in the body of Christ to understand today. We see, for example, this enormous popularity of modern of the modern church growth movement that is a testimony to our penchant for bigger and better, for for grandiosity, for notoriety. And Christians have really gone the way of the world in exalting celebrities. We're big about that, aren't we? We love to have awards, especially, for example, I already mentioned it in Christian music. Friends, can you imagine Jesus hosting the Dove Awards? Praising musicians who have achieved some kind of star status. And for those of us who have been intimately involved in that industry, we all know that the reason that happens is to boost record label profits. But can you imagine the Lord heaping accolades of praise on those who love to be worshipped by the masses of naive Christians? It's inconceivable. Contrast that to the unsung heroes of the faith like James the Less. Contrast that with the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 4, as he was talking about the glorious treasure of, of the gospel that he preached, He said that it was contained in earthen vessels, referring to we as preachers and anybody that ministers on behalf of Christ. That that glorious gospel of Christ, that incredible treasure is contained in earthen vessels. And he goes on to say in verse seven of Second Corinthians four, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. In other words, he was saying we are just mere clay pots. Those pots, by the way, were used for garbage in those days for human waste. So the analogy is simply this. We are lowly, common, unattractive. Can we even say expendable? Child of God, we should never forget this. You see, it is the content of our message that is to be exalted, not the container Can you imagine having clay pot awards? You know, preacher of the year. Ridiculous. It flies in the face of everything that Christ preached. Beloved, only the proud crave rewards from men. I remember the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 10, But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Now, as a footnote, if I can digress for a moment, our unwillingness at times to humbly serve in obscurity, if the Lord so desires, can be manifested in some other forms of seeking praise. For example, we see a lot of elitism in the body of Christ in the church. We see that, in, for example, in, in times when people try to elevate their personal preferences to the status of doctrinal dogma. You know, the idea of look at me because of what I do and what I don't do, that type of thing. In fact, I was thinking in the last month with emails and phone calls, here is what I have had to deal with. I've had to address those who 
believe in head coverings for women who criticized this church because we allow our women to wear pants, who have criticized this church because we do not believe in the King James only as the only translation of the Bible. We've been criticized because of the style of music that we have, that it's not traditional enough. And others have criticized it because we're not contemporary enough. You just can't win, right? Been criticized because we worship in a church building rather than homes and therefore we're wasting the Lord's money. That took about an hour and a half to deal with. Others that I've had to deal with in just the last month, people bragging because we don't send our kids to public schools. And, in, and along the same line, we don't even have any televisions in our house. And then another family I dealt with were bragging about how that they can wear whatever they want to to church, and that they don't even have any hymn books. And on it goes. Personal preferences. Who cares? The people that care are the people that want to be noticed. Friends, it's a real danger to seek some kind of spiritual spotlight like the Pharisees that, according to John 12, loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You see, pride will go to any length to exalt itself, will it not? It will go to any length. And beloved, are, let me ask you, are you willing to quietly serve the Lord in obscurity like James the Less? With no agenda to draw attention to yourself, to get people to say, wow, look how superior that person is because of what he or she does or doesn't do. Are you satisfied with your station in Christian service? And I know many of you are. I see that here at this church. And I fear that too often we long to be bigger and better than what maybe the Lord would have for us. Friends, when we become consumed with the breadth of our ministry, how big it can be, we will inevitably neglect its depth. Remember, as we look at the gospel and we see the ministry of Christ, it's always counterintuitive. If you want to gain your life, you've got to be willing to what? You've got to be willing to lose it. And we see the Lord coming along and, and, and rather than getting 12,000 apostles, he gets 12. And as we look at them, they're knuckleheads like us. He didn't get the spiritual elite. He didn't get the highly educated. He took common men and shaped them for his glory. And so we see this counterintuitive principle in the word of God that basically says concentration equals multiplication. In other words, concentrate on a few, invest your life in a few, and in time, the harvest will be great. But rather, in our modern evangelical culture, we see just the opposite going on. Let's get as wide and big, as quick as we possibly can, and let's ignore the depth and rather than that growing, it eventually fizzles out. So we want to be very careful that we don't find ourselves dreaming of grandiosity. Because when we do, we will inevitably forsake humility. We must be very careful about living in some grandiose future. 
It's easy to always be thinking, you know, I believe God's going to do something really great. And you know what? He, he, he may. But if you're not careful, you'll start focusing on that and you'll neglect what he's doing right now. What he's doing right now in children's church. What he's doing right now in the hearts of the saints gathered here. You see, friends, God is building his church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And you know what he does? He saves one sinner at a time. And little by little, he comes along into the lives of each of us and slowly and somewhat imperceptibly, he sanctifies us. He makes us more conformed into the image of Christ. And it's so easy to lose sight of that and want something big and grand rather than saying, God, thank you for just the opportunity to serve you, even if it is in obscurity. The apostles certainly were content with their station in ministry to live and to die in obscurity. And I wonder, what about you? And when I think of James the less, I think of all the other unnamed heroes of the faith who have gone on before us. I think of Sunday school teachers that no one's ever heard of. I think of some of the little women that taught me when I was a little boy. Nobody will ever see their name posted anywhere until heaven. I think of missionaries and youth leaders and pastors and choir directors and people in the choirs and Worker, nursery workers and janitors and businessmen that support the church and all of the unsung heroes of the faith. Beloved, think of this. The body of Christ is made up of a myriad of cells, most of which will never be recognized until glory. Think of all of the unsung heroes that have gone on before us. For example, look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning with verse 33, those who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women who received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured not accepting their release in order that they may obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. By the way, that's what they would do in the arenas. They would put sheep and goatskins on the Christians so that it would attract the wild animals who would rip them apart. Being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All of the unsung heroes that were willing to live and to die in obscurity because of their love for Christ, knowing that the reward was not on earth, but in heaven. It is believed that James the Less took the gospel to Syria and Persia. And although the accounts vary according to his death, he was martyred for the cause of Christ. Some say he was stoned. Others say he was beaten to death. Others say he was crucified. But friends, be assured that this beloved apostle was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to accomplish all that God called him to do, even in obscurity. Remember that all servants will be rewarded 
According to Colossians 3:24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Well, we glean something more when we examine the life of Simon the Zealot. He was also called Simon the Canaanite. It doesn't mean that he was a Canaanite, nor does it mean that he was from Cana, but it really is a term that comes from the, the Hebrew word, root word kana, which means to be zealous. And perhaps this described a, a fiery temperament that he had. We're not real sure. But apparently he was a member of the secret Jewish sect known as the Zealots, a political sect that hated the Roman occupation. These people were known for their violence. Basically, Simon the Zealot was a terrorist. He was awaiting, like all of the Zealots, the appearance of the Messiah to restore the Messianic kingdom to Solomonic glory. No doubt they thought they were going to soften up the enemy a bit so that when the Lord came, he would have an easier go of it. Many of them were what were called secret assassins. They were called Sicarii, which meant dagger men. And what these men would do is conceal curved daggers in their robes. And they were expert in sneaking up behind Roman officials and Roman soldiers and so on, and quickly and very silently slipping that knife through the rib cage and dissect the person's heart. And they could do it instantly. They were feared and they were hated by the Romans. The zealots, by the way, had a reputation for being willing to suffer virtually any kind of torture. They could endure any amount of pain because of their zeal for their Messiah, and they were even impervious to the torture of their own families. What they would do then is they would attack, especially in Jerusalem, and then they'd run into Galilee to hide. And think, Simon left all of this to follow Jesus. By the way, we believe that Simon probably followed Christ originally for the wrong reasons at first, even as Judas Iscariot did. But then, obviously, the Lord later softened his heart and he became a believer. It's fascinating, isn't it, to think that God chose a terrorist to be his servant, a man filled with hatred and violence and rage. But over time, his misplaced zeal was redirected by truth and he learned to love his enemies. And dear friends, this brings me to the second great virtue of ministry that came to my mind as I was thinking about these men not only was, must we be willing to serve in obscurity, but we need to be willing to serve with love for those perhaps we once hated and even love for those who hate us. Now, imagine this. Simon, the zealot being thrown in with Matthew, the tax collector. Remember, Matthew was a publicani. By the way, we're skipping Matthew because I dealt with that on this on the sermon, the, the Passion of the Christ. So if you want to hear about Matthew, you can go back and I go into great detail about Matthew. But remember, Matthew was a publicani. He was a Jew who collected taxes for the Romans and they considered him a traitor. They considered him a thief, a murderer. The publicanis were barred from the synagogue. They were considered unclean. They were like swine. They were forbidden to even give testimony in a Jewish court. This is just the kind of man Simon the Zealot would have loved to have met on the dark alley. 
And yet the Lord throws them together in ministry. I would imagine Matthew didn't turn his back on that guy, at least for a while. But by God's grace, they they serve side by side as spiritual brethren, loving one another, serving one another and and committed to a common goal. And that is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and spread the gospel. And friends, it is so tragic when you see brothers and sisters in Christ who refuse to work together and to serve together in love and in harmony. Committed to one common goal to see Christians attacking one another. And, you know, there are whole ministries today that do nothing but that angry, factious, divisive people, hyper vigilant to find fault with other folks, other people in the body of Christ. And typically, that's fueled by some petty jealousy or some arrogance because they see themselves as spiritually elite over someone else. And maybe it's fueled by wounded pride because they're mad at someone or some other group that is not jumping through their particular hoops that they would like to see jump through and someone not agreeing over their preferences or holding to some favorite pet doctrine. And as a result, what happens is rather than serving the Lord in love, they become slanderous and they become malicious gossips and and there is jealousy and there is strife. And the Lord says he hates that. In Proverbs 6, verse 19, he says that he hates a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brethren. If I can give you just a, a quick example of this, turn over to third John for just a moment. Turn over to third John. Close to the book of Revelation. And in third John, we see how devastating this type of unloving ministry can can be. We have an example of a man who not only refused to serve humbly in obscurity, but also refused to to love the brethren, a man by the name of Diotrephes. Notice in third John. And verse nine. The Apostle John writes and says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. He loves to have, the New King James says, the preeminence among them. The Greek, by the way, means to be fond of the first position. In other words, it means to to wish to be first, to want to be the leader. And the term itself expresses the idea of selfish ambition, a desire to be first in everything, to be noticed, to be exalted. And certainly the, the, the apostles struggled with this at times. We know that they were bickering from time to time over who was going to be first in the kingdom. But according to the grammar of this text, we see that Diotrephes habitually functioned in this way. He hated obscurity. He demanded the prominence. And notice in verses 10 and 11, we read, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly accusing us with wicked words. In other words, he was slandering the, the apostles and the leaders of the church and and not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. In other words, when other leaders, when other uh, pastors and elders and even the apostles would come to the church, he would do everything he could to keep them out so that they would not have a platform that would in any way jeopardize his platform, and he wouldn't even let other people in the church take them into their homes 
Instead, he would refuse them. It's inconceivable. Verse 11, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Quite a criticism of this type of an individual. And it's so wicked to see church bullies, to see people that set themselves up like diatrophies to be the keeper of the gate. Pathological antagonists that love to find fault with others. Hypercritical, malevolent liars, divisive slanderers. And unfortunately, we see this from time to time in the church. And it is a clear violation of what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. In fact, Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1, he entreated the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, obviously, Simon the Zealot learned to love. He learned to set aside his foolish pursuit of, of politics and devote his life to serving Christ and building his kingdom. Let me ask you, what about you? Do you love the brethren? Do you love other brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you, do you look to build them up? Or are you quick to tear them down and consider yourself to be the self-appointed keeper of the gate like diatrophies. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians. Remember, they were bickering and fighting with one another, refusing to serve and, and love. And he uses the imagery of wild animals tearing each other apart. And he reminded them to control their flesh in Galatians five, beginning in verse 13. And he says, but through love, serve one another for the law, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. So, friends, be be on guard. We don't want to become like Diotrephes. Instead, we want to be even like Simon the Zealot, who learned to love and to serve in humility. By the way, may I remind you that the only basis for criticism of another believer is if they are teaching false doctrine or they're living in habitual sin. And even at that, we are to confront them in the spirit of gentleness before we would ever break fellowship. And the only basis for severing that fellowship would be the same. Deliberate, the deliberate teaching of heresy and or unrepentant sin. Both would trigger church discipline. History tells us that Simon the Zealot took the gospel to the British Isles. And certainly I, for one, and a number of you are indebted to him for that because my ancestors come from the British Isles. And although we don't know for sure how, he too was martyred because he boldly proclaimed the gospel of Christ in obscurity and in love. And finally, we learn something more with the last character that we look at this morning, Judas, the son of James. From him, we can see that we need to learn to serve not only in obscurity and in love, but also in faith. Turn to John 14. In John chapter 14, we have the only place in the New Testament where we read anything about him. By the way, by the way, this is Judas, not Iscariot. And Judas, the son of James, had three names. In Matthew 10, 
by the way, in verse three, he's called Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Labius was um, a name from a Hebrew word, root word, meaning heart. So Labius literally would mean heart child. Judas would have been called the heart child or Thaddeus was a a term that meant breast child, which evokes the imagery of a nursing baby. Um, it may even be a, a, a humorous a form of ridicule, a derisive term that would refer to a mama's boy. We're not, we're not real sure, and I don't want to make much out of that. But perhaps he was just the cherished baby of the family. We don't know. But certainly all of this gives us the idea that at least he was a simple, innocent, childlike man, probably soft-spoken and gentle, a warm-hearted sort of fellow, certainly the opposite of the sons of thunder. But Judas was the given name that he was given at birth, which means Jehovah leads. And again, I'm intrigued with how he fit in with those rough, thunderous fishermen and a former tax collector and a terrorist. I would imagine you would have heard a lot of yes, sirs, anything you say, sir, if you were around him. And folks, as I think about it, what a microcosm of the body of Christ, this little ragtag group of apostles, a, a kaleidoscope of personalities, a mixed bag of, of, of preferences, yet a common calling, uh, a, a common love and a common purpose, join heirs with Jesus. And I think of the wide variations of those that attend here at Calvary Bible Church. All the, the variation of personalities and, and of preferences. But in John 14, we learn a bit more about Judas Labius Thaddeus, the man with three names. Remember the context here. John is describing the, the events of the upper, the, the events uh, here in the upper room. And Jesus speaks to us and. Verses 21 through 22. And here's what Jesus said. He who has my. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me shall be loved by my father. Again, a a very clear reference to the deity of Christ. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Very interesting Comment. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now, folks, here Judas reveals just the tenderness and humility of his heart. You see, he is struck with the reality that Jesus and God, his father, would would love them and disclose himself to them. By the way, in the original language, the word disclose means to reveal or or to manifest. It means to make visible. It means to present something in a clear and conspicuous form to make something abundantly obvious. And Judas is thinking, wait a minute, I I, I know my own heart and and I know these men. I'm well aware of all the bickering that goes on between us from time to time. I'm aware of our pride and our prejudices, all of our of our jealousies and our brashness and and at times our cowardness, our weak faith. And with all that, Lord, you still love us and you're going to reveal yourself to us. You're going to disclose yourself to us. Lord, this is inconceivable. We are so undeserving. 
You see, here was a man who understood the depths of his own depravity. Here was a man that was well aware of his own wretchedness and even the wretchedness of his brethren. And he knew that such love was undeserved. And with all of that in mind, he struggles with the issue of fairness. It just seems so unfair for the incarnate Christ to reveal himself and the God of glory to reveal themselves in the triune Godhead to this group. And not to the rest of the world. Folks, I want you to notice this is not a rebuke. There's no hint of hostility here. It's just a humble question flowing from a humble heart. And we also would understand that he, he was struggling here with his eschatology. What was going to happen in the future? You see, in effect, what he was saying is, wait a minute, Lord. We all were under the impression now that, that you were going to establish your, your, your millennial kingdom. That you were going to reveal yourself, disclose yourself to the whole world. You're the promised Messiah. You're here. You're our deliverer, our king. You're going to run Rome out and establish your kingdom, aren't you? You remember back in Matthew 24, the disciples were leaving the temple. And they were pointing to the to the buildings there on the Temple Mount, the text tells us. And and Jesus said to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Matthew 24, 2. Well, this was terribly confusing to the disciples because it did not fit into their eschatology. What do you mean? You're going to tear down the temple? I, I, I thought the kingdom age was now. I, I thought you were going to establish yourself. You see, they didn't understand that there was going to be a gap in time. So therefore, next we read in verse 3 of Matthew 24. And he, referring to Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? There's that same word. You're revealing your parousia. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The sign of your coming, your parousia, the revealing of your presence as Messiah King. When will when will we see the, this ultimate visible manifestation the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. When will we see that, Lord? When will there be absolutely no mistake about who you are? When are you going to set aside all of this humility and establish yourself in glory? You see, they didn't realize that the parousia, the ultimate visible manifestation of Christ, would occur at his second coming. So back to Judas. He's humbled. He's confused. And. So he tenderly asks Jesus, Lord, I, I, I don't understand here. What then has happened, verse 22, that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus tenderly answered him in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, referring to the triune Godhead, will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Folks, in essence, here's what the Lord was saying. Judas, I want you to trust me. I will love and disclose myself to all those who habitually love me and keep my word. Certainly that is the mark of a genuine Christian. Their love and their obedience is what validates the genuineness of their faith. Judas, I know you don't understand it all. 
But you will. When the Holy Spirit enters you at Pentecost in the future here, you will understand more. So trust me. Judas, I want you to understand that there's nothing unfair about my redemptive purposes. All who love me will be saved and all those who don't won't. Ah, but for those who do love me, demonstrated by their obedience, we, the triune Godhead, will make our abode in them. My parousia, my revealing, my disclosure must first take place. And I know you don't understand this, Judas, but it must first take place in the hearts of men and women who truly love me. Then we will establish the kingdom of God in their hearts. But the parousia, the ultimate disclosure that all the world will see, will come at a later time. Trust me. Now, folks, put yourself in Judas's position. You're overwhelmed. You're humbled with such undeserved mercy and grace, but you're also confused. You're bewildered. You're saying, Lord, what, what, what must we do here? I, I don't understand this. And you know what the answer simply is? To trust God. Folks, this is at the core of ministry, to trust God. And what I mean by that is to have faith in all that he is and all that he says, to have faith in his word. As we're told in Isaiah 50 and verse 10, where we read about those that might fear the Lord and and they walk with the Lord and they obey him. And yet they're walking in darkness and they don't have light, light and they don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. And that text says, let him Trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. In other words, trust in the name of the Lord. The, the name Lord is, is the summary of all of his attributes. Trust in him as your rock, your fortress, your redeemer, your deliverer, your savior, your king, and all that is encompassed in his name. And rely upon your God. You see, folks, this is the key to effective ministry. Not only must we must we be willing to serve in obscurity, but also to serve in love and in faith, believing what God has promised. Well, it is well documented that Judas, the son of James, spread the gospel into the northern regions, which would be Turkey, into a place called Edessa in particular, which was a royal city in Mesopotamia. And there are numerous accounts that. He healed King Abgar of Edessa, and we read that later he was clubbed to death for his boldness in proclaiming and protecting the truth of the gospel. In fact, the apostolic symbol that is traditionally used with respect to Judas Labius Thaddeus, the symbol, especially in that part of the world today, is that of a club. Reminding us all of the potential sacrifice that must sometimes be made for the cause of Christ. Folks, may I challenge you? Are you willing to live and to serve in obscurity and in love for the brethren and in faith, believing all that God has promised, even at times when it makes no sense? I pray that all of you will be willing to join into the battle. Pick up the sword, join the fray. Don't rob yourself of the exhilaration of fighting the enemy of our souls. Beloved, I don't know about you, but my spirit triumphs in the anticipation that someday 
when all the enemies of the cross are destroyed and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. We will be able to stand in the presence of God and his glory. And I, I want to be one of those soldiers that stands there in his presence, fresh off the front lines, bloodied but not beaten, bruised but not broken. I pray that you too will join with me in a desire to be part of the battle. Don't sit on the sidelines of the church. Get involved. Who are you discipling? Who are you? Who have you targeted to come to a saving knowledge of Christ? Where are you serving? Join in the battle so that you can join in the triumph when he has subjected all things under his feet, that God may be all in all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these men that have gone on before us. I pray that we will learn much from their lives and that we will live what we have learned, that you might be glorified and that we might experience all the joy and all the blessings that you long to give us. Lord, again, I pray that you will speak to any heart that knows nothing of you as Savior. Give them no rest, no comfort until they place their faith in you. Thank you for meeting with us this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.